You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 11th annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Maynooth University on the 18th and 19th of August, 2023. The conference was generously supported by the MacMorris Project, the Irish Research Council, the Department of English at Maynooth University, the Arts and Humanities Institute at Maynooth University, and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. You can access an archive of more than 250 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by David McElreevy from Irish Archaeological Consultancy, titled Reconstructing the Jaycock House, Little Mary Street, Dublin, during the early reign of James II. In the talk uh, title, it's actually Little Green Street is the technical street we're talking about, but Little Mary Street is the development that we uh, worked on, so that's why it became Little Mary Street. And this will be in the sort of later 17th century. Um, 1686 is the date we chose because that's one of our firm dates in the very sort of morassy later 17th century. So just to orientate yourselves, uh, that's uh, Little Mary Street in red, uh, just to the immediate west of Cable Street, uh, just north of Liffey, and that's the scale of the development we're talking about. So we've got bordered by Little Mary Street in the bottom, uh, Little Green Street, and then Anglesey Row on the right there. Um, the reason we're showing that scale of development is the massive basement construction that they um, wanted to get um, to facilitate the hotel because obviously there's no parking in that area so it gave us a facility to go about three to four meters down into serious urban deposits. Impact assessments that were done before archaeological testing or excavation hit the ground uh, we already knew St Mary's Abbey was in this immediate area so that's actually speeds map reorientated and uh, placed onto it. Uh, you can see in green are the various excavations and investigations that have happened around the area but you'll actually just see what we're looking at in our site is this little cluster of buildings up here with 19E0156. So that's my excavations up there. And it became immediately obvious what we're looking at is a little um, cluster of buildings. And one of them does actually appear to be a gatehouse, which will be significant. Uh, just to go back, you can see the kink in the street of Little Mary, or Little Green Street there. And that's um, part of the reason why the little gatehouse was there. The road's been realigned. So that's the post-excavation survey and plan of the actual development. You can see it's quite busy, but the reason we're actually showing that is uh, in light blue, you can see the scale of modern interference. So light blue is all poured concrete and concrete foundations around the area. Um, so whenever we first did our excavation, our investigations, um, it became obvious there had been quite a lot of modern disturbance. Um, the top photo there is what they known as mushroom, um, upside down mushroom uh, foundations. So a wide base and poured concrete on the top. And then you can actually see that's a medieval structure being partially held together by poured concrete from the 70s. So um, it was an interesting one to try and work around how to um, actually get away with um, finding what we need to find. It wasn't just modern development as well. We've got a large um, scale of Victorian reused and remodified cellars across the site. Uh, there was actually just a series of, of uh, Victorian wells as well. So you can see that there's, there's quite a lot of you know, um, different periods in the mix, uh, a lot of modern uh, disturbance. But getting through all that, I won't show you the, the horrendous um, conditions. But um, what we actually managed to find was um, 
the remains of a 13th, 14th century gatehouse that's going into St. Mary's Abbey. So you can see in that uh, yellow um, on that plan, there was a very distinctive architectural features which have uh, been identified by my, by my colleague Paul Duffy as um, diagonal buttresses, a uh, very sort of French uh, flourished in Irish gatehouse. Um, and he's been working quite a lot um, with uh, some of our reconstructions to get this image produced. So that should have been in its 13th, 14th century heyday uh, under the Cistercian Abbey. Um, interestingly, the upper story of this is thought to be a chapel, and that does actually bear out because the, um, it's still referred to as St. Mary's Chapel in a deed up until the 1711s. So um, it's partly it's not uncommon throughout Cistercian and Benedictine foundations throughout Britain to have a chapel of some note above a gatehouse separating out the inner and outer precincts of a major abbey. Um, I'll be going back to this plan over and over again because actually our 17th century houses bang on top of this, but it's useful to know what we're actually building on. So finally on to the talk, uh, post-dissolution development of the gatehouse. Um, following dissolution of the abbey in the late 1530s, um, the gatehouse passed through a number of landowners. And normally, um, they seem to be mostly um, uh, military adventurers involved in the Nine Years' War and the resolution of that. Especially Sir William Taft, he seems to have got a, a large grant for his speedy resolution of the Ulster crisis. Um, until it becomes part of the acquisitions for Sir Gerald Murr, who's Viscount Drogheda, and that's confirmed to him by James I in 1619. Now that's important because Viscount Drogheda is the one who gets really into his head to actually start developing this area. It's no longer just gardens and, and buildings have been handed over. Uh, he actually owns most of um, the land to the west of, of the, the former um, gatehouse, but he does own these small, two small plots on, on the east side. Um, the gatehouse structure um, itself, uh, he seems to have actually passed it on, and it's acquired by Captain William Arthur John Geacock uh, prior to 1686, when he bequeathed it in a will to the grandniece of his wife, Constant Byrne. Uh, Geacock himself is a fascinating character. He... Um, He's the captain of the Irish Brigades who, during the crumbling of the Second Protectorate, um, ends up in Parliament pleading the loyalty of the Irish Brigades and gets an unspecified amount of money for his troubles. Uh, he ends up marrying into what looks like English sort of gentry in Conceal and consequently becomes known as Captain Jacob of Conceal. Uh, but he seems to actually acquire this, um, and we don't know when he actually got it because he is active in Dublin in the 1650s. He seems to be a fairly interesting captain who's concerned with the Cromwellian army being seen to police itself. So he's mentioned in several uh, court cases internally within the army as a prosecutor. So he's, he's determined for the Irish to see that the Cromwellian occupation is a fair and equitable one. Um, so we don't know whether he actually acquired property in Dublin because he was based in Dublin at this point or whether he acquires it later on as part of his reward. That was the gatehouse, um, as I said, um, just the archaeological um, plan of it. You can see, again, the light blue is all the concrete that went around it and disturbed it. But even with that, you can actually see um, we've got uh, post-medieval walls, um, probably around 1680s or 1675, in blue. Uh, the gatehouse itself is actually reduced down at this point to its foundations, um, but they don't reduce it far, far enough down for us to completely obliterate the medieval the house is actually extended further on through the gatehouse. You can see where the bottom diagonal has been cut straight through. And what we've got is a, you know, a, a two-room bait, or sort of um, lower story. Um, the orange is actually the, uh, underneath the, the main road. We're able to get enough 
to suggest that the, the return is, is still intact underneath that. Um, the red element is actually a reconstructed uh, boundary wall um, that, that extends to the north, and we'll be able to see that as we, we go along. But that's just where we're able to initially salvage from, from what we looked at. Just some indications of what we had. Um, interestingly enough, uh, if you look in that um, picture with the square buttress and the diagonal, you can see that the medieval you know, levels are still there. But interestingly enough, the, there's no indication of a blocked up gatehouse doorway. So it's been reduced down enough and completely rebuilt. They haven't just blocked up the medieval gateways. They've done a pretty substantial job, which might suggest there was some uh, structural instability they had to deal with. They didn't just do a, you know, a patch-up job on it. Uh, the lower picture is actually the uh, rebuilt boundary wall at the woodman part of the precinct, and it's been reused in this um, later intonation. Uh, you can see the large stones, they're actually part of the, the medieval fabric, and they've been sort of interspaced with really sort of shallow ones um, of the post-medieval build. Uh, the mortar, there's actually a clear, clear difference. Uh, down with the lower ranging rod is, it's very well made and well mixed, and the post-medieval is, is fairly sandy and fairly sort of ropey in its, its composition. So um, that's why they're using the smaller uh, slabs to try and stabilize the, the buildings. Um, you can just see there that's a blocked up doorway to the, the lower um, story. This is this is post-medieval um, beginning to sort of assert itself. Um, that had actually been used as a, a reused um, as a cellar in the in the 1700s. So they actually preserved, they just raised the entire um, site level, put some stairs down and hey presto you have a cellar. Um, so we're actually able to start prizing out exactly um, what, what these things look like. And on the lower photo, uh, we've actually got a view from the interior. Uh, the entire interior had been re-divided uh, and uh, re-floored with cobbling. Um, underneath that, there were some indications of plaster. that may have been tile floors that had been ripped up prior to its, its turning into a cemetery or a, a cellar. You can also see that the amount of concrete and, and drainage that were actually holding the structure together. So. Um, we did have to work with the developers quite a lot about how to preserve that. Um, interestingly enough, um, that's an aerial shot. Um, we were fortunate enough to be able to use a lot of drone photography in this one. Uh, but you can actually see there's a, a clear thickening of, of this middle wall, and we just thought that might be some sort of uh, stabilization. But actually, it's more than likely it's, um, it's a main wall fireplace, which is interesting enough because a lot of work that's been done in New Market and the area, um, there's a slight obsession that somehow 1650s, we all start using corner fireplaces. And um, it seems to be corner fireplaces in this area don't really kick off until maybe 70, 30s with the subdivision of um, these things. So uh, we might still have these big grand fireplaces in, in these relatively fashionable houses up to you know the late 17th century. Um, that's just a, um, an elevation that um, I, I made one of our supervisors draw. He was very unhappy about it. Um, so this is actually along this um, sort of east-facing wall. So you've got a corner buttress represented at either end. The uh, yellow actually represents uh, the main doorway, the one that we just saw back there that was fully preserved. Uh, it's been blocked up in bricks later on whenever they turned it um, into enclosed cellars. But we also have two interesting, two nicely represented window opes um, that probably would have held sash windows. We begin to fill in a bit more of a detail of, of, of the exterior of the structure. Um, and like I say, we've got some indication of the interiors as well. And then we came on this beauty in about 1689. This is Francis Place's drawing from the top of Cable Street looking down towards uh, Little Green Street. 
And just in the middle of his drawing, you've got two gable-fronted houses uh, attached to a large yard, um, and they're sort of facing exactly where, where we need to be. So, interesting enough, for, for an archaeologist, it's quite nice to have an actual drawing of what we should be doing. Normally, I've got a puzzle box. There's no lid, half the piece is missing, and no one's alive who's ever seen what it looked like. So, it's nice to have an actual representation. The crucial thing here is probably the uh, fireplace or the fireplace chimneys are actually in the middle of the building, which actually ties in with having a main wall fireplace rather than the corner fireplaces. Um, and uh, they seem to be gable fronted, which is quite fashionable at the time. Um, it's a bit of a nod to um, Dutch influences coming in. And this also this large um, uh, yard that's extending to the north. Interesting enough, I don't know whether it's just place didn't draw any windows but there are no windows on that northern facade of that main house so I don't know exactly whether that's just something missing um, but he actually shows it's a two and a half story so two stories in a dormer um, and we've actually uh, relied a lot on Peter Keenan has done a lot of work on the leases in this area getting on to the material culture that came with it um, what we're actually looking at there's two key sort of pits that show us what might be happening um, if you just see that large circle, that's actually just a um, bottle kiln, but just immediately to the south of that, there's a, a key pit I'll be talking about, and also just here, there's a stone mine one we'll be talking about as well. A lot of very interesting things came out of that at the same period as when we think the house was being developed. Uh, this uh, stone line pit didn't look very spectacular at the start. 30 to 40 bottles of uh, onion shape came out of it. This was not a Puritan household. These are um, definitely enjoying themselves. Um, we've got a nice, um, the mallet bottles that are slightly more um, rectangular in form to do with the laying down of wine and trade agreements between England and um, Portugal don't really come into the early 1700s. So we have a nice sort of date range that the, the shaft bottles are going out of fashion. These are coming in maybe 1670s-ish, becoming more and more fashionable, and 1680s, 1690s would be pulley. It does look like they were completely disposed of in one go, these were intact. So they've just gone out of fashion. Now we know the house gets turned over in about the early 1700s to um, a, a rentee. So unless it's just, it's a house clearance and they're clearing up pits and just filling it with unfashionable material. This is a lovely um, little drinking glass from uh, actually British in London. Uh, very, very chunky um, upper nodules uh, made out of glass and uh, sort of decorative, you can't possibly see it, but decorative drops within the, um, within the glass fabric itself. But a very, very dainty, sort of drinking glass and shows up, you know, they're not just swigging this stuff straight from the bottle, there's a, there's a whole material culture that goes with it. Um, there's another, uh, the pit that was immediately south of the, um, the bottle kiln. It's an online pit, um, so it's probably designed that the, any sort of effluent will seep away, it's not as well constructed as the other one. But you can see one of our site systems there is actually uncovering an entire um, chamber pot, and not just the first one that came apart, these are intact vessels that are thrown in so again, the idea of it's not just waste, it's a, possibly a house clearance of the period that we're looking at. Um, that's two of the North, um, North Devon uh, gravel-free wares. Uh, really nice constructed, you're probably talking about maybe 30 centimetres. Um, and again, there's no reason to throw these out apart from the fact that they've gone out of fashion and they're not particularly wanted around the place, but they were intact. Um, also, we have a Bristol um, Staffordshire. The top photo is when you blow it up, really quite scary. Um, but I've been assured that um, that is possibly a um, 
human figure wearing a possible doublet with buttons down the front uh, and a hat. You can see where the lines have been uh, scored in and they're supposed to colour it in, so I don't know where they're in a rush, but they've just dabbed what they need to to show the, the absolute minimum. But still, quite fashionable material and um, unfortunately most of this plate uh, in the lower one was actually um, too badly destroyed to actually read, but we've got definite Roman numerals and possible text on it as well. Um, possibly the favourite that grabbed everyone um, was there are 30, 40 possible um, mostly intact uh, North Devon Scrofito wear. Um, very, very gaudy to artists these days. Um, bright yellow and you've got scored in designs, but a fish on, on the um, left-hand slide um, and a bird. The, the bird appeared on at least three to four of the plates. Got this idea of maybe a dinner service <laughs> in Scrofito where which just doesn't happen. Um, but you can see very, very well produced and um, they, they've obviously gone in, like I say, these aren't just small pieces, these are these are heavy chunks of, of plates that are going in. But this is what led me down the rabbit hole in the first place. This is a 16, late 1680s, early 1690s, she knows we um, inspired jug. That came out of the, uh, the, the online pit as well. Um, we came up with it. It was obviously in, in pieces, but we soon realised that a lot of those pieces didn't fit together fairly well. So it was thrown in uh, with only a small piece missing, and then it's been broken up in the pit going along. Um, a lot of discussions with our finds officer, Siobhan uh, Scully, who then referred on to uh, Claire McCutcheon, who also referred on to her colleagues in Mollas. Um I think there's a Lynn Blackmore and a Jackie Pierce who did a lot of work and they seem to suggest that it was being produced or at least decorated in Southwark or um, Lambeth in London, which is interesting, A, because if the decoration is happening in London, are they importing in these things completely undecorated from the Netherlands, from the production areas, and then you're busy, you're waiting to see what the clients are going to buy. Um, also, the, the wine glass that I showed earlier seems to be just in that area of London as well. So, is someone buying a lot of material and bringing it from one area? Is Constance Byrne possibly moving from England to Dublin at this time? Um, there's all, this is only the beginning of, of, of sort of tying in the historical is, um, um, dots that, that might connect the whole thing. Um, the, the jug itself is about 23 centimetres high. You can see there's a difference in actual um, decoration uh, colours. Uh, most of our small fragments that we got uh, from this sort of material were all blue and white, mimicking you know, uh, classic porcelain. This seems to be a development that's going on in the Netherlands and it's crossed into England in about 1680s, 1690s, polychrome, using different colours to, to make it slightly more interesting. Um, and then, yeah, so uh, like I say, very fashionable, sort of showing restoration fashions going forward. Um, but the most, probably smallest thing that we found, but the most interesting, was a religious tile that came out of the same area. That's a Delft tile that's been decorated probably in London. She was a garden in Gethsemane with Christ begging for the cup to be taken off him. That is a very interesting find for this sort of area and this sort of time frame. It's well known James II's proclivities towards promoting an open um, open view of Catholicism and he himself had converted um, earlier on in his um, life. But for a person to be showing this sort of thing in their house in a semi-public way, um, 
is, is very, very interesting. Again, the Dutch tile decorated in London to those tastes is Constance Byrne, who acquires the house of a Cromwellian officer, got a private devotional chapel that's got very high Anglican stroke Catholic um, influences. Within probably you know five years, this is the, the idea of showing off this idea of, of having Catholic taste in your house has been completely consumed in the war of these two kings. And then we have the penal laws of the Williamite period after that. So it's a nice little shot, snapshot of a fa fashionable house in this area of Dublin that doesn't normally get seen. And all of a sudden you've got these little indications of fashion, but also social and political leanings that maybe within, maybe only existed for five to 10 years. And then we have a much more puritanical view of, of these expressions after that. So that's pretty much us. And um, like I say, it's only a, a small snapshot of this period, but it's a really interesting one for archaeology. And um, like I say, we generally get consumed with the medieval period in, in, in the middle of Dublin, but um, there's a wealth of activity out there for just a very small period. It's interesting. Okay. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. For more information on the conference, go to TudorStuartIreland.com. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.